You are tuned into the Dr. Tina Show with Dr. Tina Moore. For more, visit drtina.com. Welcome to the Dr. Tina Show. I'm your host, Dr. Tina Moore. I'm a naturopathic and chiropractic physician, and I'm here to tell you the truth as I know it. With censorship and thought police taking over the platforms and airwaves, my goal is to bring you real talk about all things health, strength, and resiliency. Get ready to have your paradigm rocked. I don't hold back, and I tell it how I see it. This is Human Wellness 2.0 Uncensored. Today's guest is Dr. John Kim. Dr. John is a pharmacist and functional medicine practitioner in New Jersey and online. On today's episode, we discuss what ivermectin is, how inexpensive and effective therapeutics have been politicized and censored, how viruses work, how viruses move through population, lockdowns, PCR testing, and more. If you have any questions for the show, please email us at podcast at drtina.com. That's D-R-T-Y-N-A.com. And if you like this show, please rate it and subscribe to it on your favorite podcast app. I'm glad you're here. Let's jump in. Dr. John Kim, I'm so excited to have you here. We are going to talk about some great stuff. You are a pharmacist and a functional medicine doctor, and I have rarely met the likes of someone with your brain power. So I am very excited to have you today, and and uh, we're going to have a fun show. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much, Doc, for in- introducing me so uh, well. I'm very humbled. At the same time, I don't know about the brain power. I just read a lot of stuff and able to regurgitate and able to apply it in certain scenarios. So hopefully I'm able to entertain and educate your followers today. Yes, yes. Well, Dr. John and I have a ferocious texting game where we send each other. You think we would send memes, but we do sometimes. Mainly we're just sending <laughs> the latest of like, can you effing believe what's going on right now articles? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It is. <laughs> it's the state of the world. So we are going to talk about ivermectin today. Yeah. Yep. Ivermectin is a big thing. So there's a lot of censorship going on, which we cannot freely talk about on Instagram to begin with. And I don't know if you remember or not, I talked about Ivermectin very early on and I got flagged twice by Instagram and I had to delete it. Uh, So I'm basically on the last straw at this point. So I'm just like really itching to discuss this matter with you today. (laughs) (laughs) You made some videos early on. That's how I found you on Instagram. These are, I love, I just interviewed uh, Dr. Seth Gerlach too, who I know you're familiar with. So I'm, I'm, I'm going through all my Instagram buddies. And you made some videos. I remember thinking, oh my goodness, I can't believe he's talking about that right now. He is going to get in trouble. And you did not. And I think what you told me recently was that they went back and flagged you for something that was old. Yeah, right? absolutely. Uh, vitamin protocols that I had made back in March of last year. Uh, I talked about the, um, the political issue dealing with hydroxychloroquine. And then the last video I had made about was basically ivermectin and how even though it is a repurposed drug, it actually shown very good results in actually reducing the severity, treating patients in the hospital, as well as to potentially prevent uh, COVID from happening. Yes. I found some studies very early on on ivermectin as well. I live in a rural area. So of course, my fiance and his farming family were like, oh, we have that in horse paste, right? <laughs> And it's shockingly inexpensive and easy to access, which I believe to be a huge part of this problem. But anyway, why don't you describe what ivermectin is for the audience and its use in this application? Yeah, so, so ivermectin, it is a antiparasitic medication. It's been out as one of the 
best drug possible. So if you look at the World Health Organization, ivermectin is found to be one of the top drugs to really treat numerous issues dealing with you know, tuberculosis and as well as dealing with parasites and et cetera. So especially for a third world country, ivermectin really made a humongous impact in terms of public health. Now, in dealing with that, ivermectin actually has other properties in dealing with that, especially when you're looking at the mechanism of action dealing with COVID and ivermectin, it actually has a property to inhibit the replication of many viruses. So one of the things could be the influenza, uh, Zika virus, dengue fever, and et cetera. There's, these are published data that's available that we know that ivermectin, even though it's an antiparasitic medication, it actually has a antiviral properties and is pretty cheap to begin with. And on top of that, there are several mechanisms that we're still trying to figure out at this point. But one of the main things that it works so well, and if you look at the overall issue dealing with COVID is the cytokine storm that patients have to go through. And is a, ivermectin is a potent uh, anti-inflammatory agent that we could potentially use on top of the fact that it actually diminishes a lot of the organ damages that can occur from COVID on top of it actually helps to prevent the transmission of the virus, right? So those are a couple of things you could definitely uh, look at. And another thing that we are finding that is that it actually helps to really hasten and prevent the deterioration of the patient. So you're looking at long haul syndrome that patients going through with COVID. Out of all the patients that we dispense ivermectin in our pharmacy, so far, knock on wood, none of them actually have those long-term issues. So that's the biggest thing that, uh, that we're looking at. So what, what's happening is that there's a big play of your, your microbiome, and as well as modifying that microbiome really helps to increase and as well as to modulate your immune system. So it's the overall issue dealing with the low hole syndrome is much, much less, right? So and in dealing with ivermectin, being that's anti-inflammatory um, anti and as antiviral, if you look at the overall long haul issues right now, we're finding more that there are interplaying between parasites dealing with Epstein-Barr, potentially Coxsackie virus, and that goes on. And so, yes, ivermectin is probably one of the well-designed as more of a, almost like a, a mistake, literally, that we're finding out that there's a lot more properties behind ivermectin rather than just being a simple parasite medication. Got it. So it is an antiparasitic. I'm just mm -hmm. backing up a little for the audience. It's an antiparasitic. Yeah. That's what it was traditionally developed for. It's got a long history of safe use. Mm -hmm. It's very inexpensive. Very. I mean, ge generally speaking, widely available throughout the world. It inhibits viral replication, you said, correct? Mm -hmm. Yep. It is an anti-inflammatory. I believe, isn't the mechanism on that, doesn't it lower interleukin-6? It does. It definitely does. And that's another huge. Thing that, can, you, can you talk about that? Because that's huge. Yes. Yeah, so interleukin-6 is, it is simply put as a inflammatory marker they're looking at. And that interleukin-6 can actually interplay in terms of causing additional cytokine storm and activity that goes on, which can result in extra macrophages gain. Uh, come into play. And that also resulted in platelet deposits. So you have potential cause of pulmonary embolism in some patients in severe scenario COVID, uh, blood clots we talked about, organ damages, and et cetera. So it's not even just an inflammatory issue that you're dealing with. It's the overall cascade that goes on resulting in an organ failure or patients having trouble breathing 
or even in dealing with the fact that there are potential cause of fibrosis going, going on in the lungs, which can also result in these patients needing ventilation later on. Yeah, so interleukin-6, I kind of think of it as like Paul Revere. It runs through the body and starts screaming, fire, 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 and the cytokine storm comes. That's usually how I describe it to patients. And when I was reading up early on, I found literature at the very beginning of this pandemic, right as the virus hit our shores, I was finding studies coming out and really just discussions from all over the world. Doctors were trying to help their patients or trying to get together what they were going to be doing. And as it was making sprinkling its way around the world, um, there were different cocktails that were popping up. As I started breaking down the mechanism of how it's working in this situation, it, it's been mind-blowing to me because by my math, this plus some of these other inexpensive helpers, mm-hmm. um, some nutraceuticals and potentially some other pharmaceuticals, probably would cost patients about five, six bucks a dose. Yep. Two, maybe two times a day for five days. I think by my math, and I'm, I'm being uh, generous here, but I, by my math <laughs> would keep 90 some percent of people out of hospital. Am oh, I, yeah. is that a bold statement? I don't think it's a bold statement at all. This is what I see clinically. So that makes a humongous difference that, hey, you know what? You don't have to get these patients being sent home, see what basically the see what happened kind of protocol. And then when you have trouble breathing, they end up having to end up in a hospital, right? So these are the type of things that we could potentially decrease. And as well as if you think about the amount of patients dying or died from this issue, how much of those deaths could we have prevented if these information ended up having to get out there in a rightfully so? But the biggest issue that we see was that even the start of the pandemic, the entirety was that is, is just talk about expensive antiretroviral drugs, or we could freely talk about vaccines. The entire discussion was about vaccination. Yes. Yes, it yeah. seemed to be the only solution they were going for, and which is surprising. I actually learned of its use clinically for this beyond just the information I found early on. Um, I had, as you I'm sure did, it is, I was talking to Dr. Seth about this as well. We sort of had a front row view of this pandemic from the frontline workers, meaning I was getting information from doctors and nurses and humans all over the planet in real time. And I th- and I said this on another episode, I firmly believe that I have had a very specific seat and view of this pandemic that I don't believe very, that, that, that few have had. Um, I was on, I was speaking my truth from the beginning on social media and I was getting messaging back from all over the world like I said, frontline workers predominantly, and they were telling me what they were doing. And I heard from a woman in Peru and she said, we are all getting ivermectin in basically a goodie bag, a prophylactic goodie bag, because our hospital systems can't handle. So everyone's on ivermectin. So all the cases were fine. Like everybody, everybody was fine in Peru. Um, Everybody was fine in India. Everybody was on ivermectin in India. We know a lot of Africa's on ivermectin, just as a largely used anti-parasitic drug. Cases were fine for a long time yeah. until the the other therapy you just spoke of, which we don't have to get into too much, but until that was employed in early January and worldwide, and they pulled ivermectin, and we again started seeing cases rise. So I don't know, what do you think about that? The overall issue dealing with ivermectin was that there was a issue behind the fact that we weren't allowed to freely talk about it. So let's kind of step back and looking at 
where the overall repurposed drugs started from the beginning of the pandemic up to where it is right now. So let's look at hydroxychloroquine, for instance, right? We knew that utilizing chloroquine, even during the SARS-CoV-1 period, that it was very useful and it was something that was where were the things that, that could be making humongous impact. Even in the early of this particular uh, SARS-CoV-2 issue that we're facing right now, even the you know, governments like uh, South Korea, Taiwan, and even Japan started utilizing hydroxychloroquine very early on, and even China, for that matter, they were doing so. And so those type of early data and having to see those three countries, if you talk, talk about them, they had the lowest mortality data and they were able to have it under control, right? But then when you come to the United States, part of the early week of March, that's when the overall information that hydroxychloroquine could be an option. So what happened? A lot of the physicians ended up having to call pharmacies to get buttloads of hydroxychloroquine tablets so it's where they could store it for their families. And so that's when the medical board and as was board of pharmacy got involved and said that you cannot prescribe or dispense any medication unless it is actually a therapeutic effect that is supposed to be indicated for and nothing more beyond COVID purposes. So there was a limitation already in New Jersey that it was basically monitored and as well as you need to have a special diagnosis code to even put it through insurance. So there was a lot of issue that behind it. But then what happened? You actually had the previous administration end up having to talk about hydroxychloroquine. Now that ended up having to be a biggest issue within the media that, hey, you know what? A president who has no medical background ended up having to talk about hydroxychloroquine. So it does not work. So there's a lot of political aspect of it. Yes, but then it got highly politicized. High, highly politicized. And then you had multiple... Um, uh, studies, including Lancet's, of having falsified data coming out stating that hydroxychloroquine did not work. Yes. So that was the biggest issue that actually occurred. And then around April, that's when the ivermectin option started to come into play, where doctors in Australia end up having to utilize these things, end up having to publish a small bit of a case study. And you had multiple of these critical care doctors utilizing ivermectin. So that's where it was. But luckily enough for us, because our pharmacy practice does a lot of these integrative hidden slash stealth in infection treatments utilizing different types of parasitic medication, ivermectin was one of the first choices once the patient ended up having to fail hydroxychloroquine. And so these patients end up having to have heavy amounts of biofilm burden, viral issues such as Epstein-Barr we talked about before. So they already had microinflammation that's going on and had an underlying uh, microbiome that's already affected as well. So utilizing ivermectin once the patient failed from hydroxychloroquine made really much a sense because we didn't know what was going on to begin with. And especially in New York, New Jersey area, we got hit the hardest. I mean, you could talk about the case numbers and et cetera that could be fabricated. You could talk about that all day long, may not make sense. But if you look at the overall aspect that I incurred and having to see these patients end up having to go down south very, very quickly, ivermectin was one of the best choices that we use and made a humongous impact. I mean, right now, so far, we had well over a thousand patients that we treated with and as well as patients being on it for preventive purposes. I myself are on um, ivermectin right now. And 
you know, that does, that's basically a choice that I made instead of getting vaccinated. And me, me too. Uh, yeah, that's what it comes out to. And it worked out very well for people who wanted options, right? Especially the frontline workers there and getting out there. And as well as the case numbers, uh, they're able to be drastically dropped in certain countries. Even, even look at India, for instance. You got to remember, there was an early rise of COVID happening around like month of March and April. And what happened? Some of the states in India, cases dropped drastically once they started using ivermectin, right? Yep. So again, the overall proof and as well as the data that's coming out, you cannot fabricate that. It makes complete sense in terms of the overall mechanism action, and it works. Now, other, other doctors may end up having to say, you need a humongous model of a study and looking at um, you know, double-blind placebo study and yes, there are certain studies that were published that, yes, there are a little bit of an inconsistency of the overall study model, but the result speaks for itself in terms of what it is. And it could still end up having to replicate this in multiple other type of countries and as well as clinics. This episode of The Dr. Tina Show is brought to you by my personal line of products that you can find inside my online store. A daily necessity for anyone who wants optimal brain performance to enjoy improved executive function, clarity, and concentration, my vital brain with magtine is the obvious choice. Magtine is a patented form of magnesium 3 and 8, the only form of magnesium proven in animal studies to cross the blood-brain barrier. Boosting the brain's magnesium levels is vital to healthy cognition, which includes long and short-term memory, learning, stress management, and even sleep. Vital Brain comes in a delicious lemon-lime flavor that easily mixes into water or your morning smoothie, and it does not impact your bowels like other forms of magnesium can. It gets into your brain where it's needed. Less pills, improved absorption. Magtine has been shown in studies to raise brain levels of magnesium, which impacts brain synapses directly. Unlike other brain products on the market that work via brain stimulation, often overstimulation, magtine works via a completely different mechanism. When brain magnesium levels are not optimal, synapse function deteriorates. By delivering magnesium into the synapses, vital brain helps brain cells stay healthy without being overactivated. Consequently, brain cells respond to signals with clarity and robustness. While I can't make specific health claims, tell you how to dose, or make individual health recommendations, I can tell you how these supplements work. As always, check with your health provider before beginning any supplement regimen. Listeners of The Dr. Tina Show can enjoy 10% off Vital Brain by using the code VITALBRAIN10 in all capital letters over inside my store at store.drtina.com. I use this product every morning and it significantly improves my productivity throughout the day. Again, head to store.drtina.com and use code VITALBRAIN10, all capital letters, for 10% off. You know, since the Pfizer study was unblinded, since all of the vaccine studies were unblinded, meaning the control, for the audience listening, it means the control group was basically because of ethics, was offered the, the vaccine because it was shown to be so, um, have such a high efficacy rate. So they offered, so they unblinded the control group, which completely destroys the study long-term. Um, my argument for when doctors say we need a, a controlled double-blind placebo study for ivermectin, I'm like, really? <laughs> like, really, that's, that's where we're going to go with this at this point? Because, and th again, that would be an ethical dilemma when it works so incredibly well. I believe just based on my thinking of how I understand viruses. And this is again, a bold statement, but I thought this, I thought this 
months and months ago. And then I heard Brett Weinstein talk about it on his Dark Horse podcast. It slipped out of his mouth too. When you look at how a virus moves through a population, first of all, this whole lockdown, this whole strategy that's been used and utilized is uh, really, it's not working, first of all. But second of all, I mean, lockdowns don't work. But second of all, we are just doing a long, drawn out, let it rip strategy, right? And we would have been out of this mess a whole lot sooner if we had let it rip. And if we had the antiviral potential of of the the ability of ivermectin to decrease viral replication, I believe if used on a massive scale would make this virus go extinct or at least drop it down into a, a level where we have some community immunity. Your body will be able to see it, handle it because the viral titers will stay so low and on we move as a society. But that's not where we're at, are we? No, not at all. And I think we're going to go uh, ask backwards in terms of what's happening with the variant at this point, right? This the entire discussion at this point, including the media, is about the Delta variant and how much of a case is rising, right? So you and I were just kind of chatting yesterday that, yes, there might be another lockdown that's going to come and you're going to drag it even more. Now, one thing that Brett Weinstein, and, and I think that's the same, same podcast episode that we watched, uh, basically, you know, one thing he mentioned about was, you know, we completely forget SARS-CoV-1, right? It yep. didn't drag on for years. It was probably about a year and a half, two years. And what happened? No one talked about it anymore, right? There's a certain period and point in time that the virus ended up having to be much more virulent, which is probably the first six months, maybe a yep. year. And what happens? The, the different variants come through and it's not as virulent anymore, right? It may transmit a lot faster, but simply put, that virus has to have a host to live on. Yes. Live, live in, actually. Excuse me. <laughs> yes. Not live on, but live in, excuse me. So they're going to be smart in terms of preserving their overall space. Yes. Right? You don't want to kill a host now. Exactly. I mean, that, that, I mean that, that's a whole thing that they, they're very smart about. But these are things that we have to really talk to the public about. And the public health aspect of it has to empower the public by talking about the right information and as well as potential therapies, not about just vaccination alone, right? And you have to look at this in a different way. Now, I'm not saying that I'm an anti-vax or pro-vax, nothing else. You need to have options within the public health arena, right? Second thing is, how do we empower patients by teaching them about right diet, you know, reducing their overall inflammation aspect of it, uh, their uh, of their life and you know how to manage their overall preventative purposes. Those are things that we should talk about, not instead of wearing a mask or you know avoiding some uh, avoiding going outside or even lockdown for that matter. Right, lockdown in itself. You just have to mention that it doesn't work. Was well, just dragging out even more, and I see it going up for another five years if it goes like this. Me too. Right. I keep saying another three to five years and people gasp and they say, what are you talking about? No way. And I'm like, dude, I've been saying that since day one. This is going to be a long, drawn out shit show because you just, viruses jump from host to host to host. Their whole agenda is to spread. They don't want to kill their host. A great example is Ebola. Ebola just burns up its host too fast. That's why it never gets off the continent of Africa usually because it burns through its host so fast. It's pretty obvious. They get sick quick you know, how long a virus lingers in a body before symptoms show, et cetera. I mean, all of this is a, this is a 
this is an easily spread virus, the coronavirus. It is aerosolized. Um, and you just sent me an article last night from the Cleveland Clinic saying it is not more deadly. It's no. just more infective. So we have the data and yet the mainstream media, and we could beat this horse to death, but the mainstream media <laughs> just simply will not share this. But the thing that gets me, John, is I tell this information to my colleagues, smart people that are also doctors, and they look at me like deer in headlights. They have not taken the time to do the research on PCR right. tests and cycle thresholds and the fallacy of that. They have not taken the time to look at the studies on masks and how ineffective they truly are and how much harm they may be causing, which that's the episode Dr. Seth Gerlach and I did together. They are not even looking at the literature on how well, I mean, when I, I remember the first article I found on ivermectin and I saw the the viral load reduction, I think it was in the eighties and my yep. jaw dropped. And I literally said to my fiance, holy shit, wait, do you hear this? And he's like, don't take the Lord's name in vain. <laughs> that was the next thing out of his mouth. And I was like, I mean, to the point where for you and I having become friends through this and, and having our discussions, like it's enough to make a person insane. I feel yeah. crazy sometimes because I don't understand why smart people that I have in the past trusted are blatantly disregarding this, like our fellow friend who we, who yesterday made a post saying the brave thing to do is to get the vaccine with no discussion of ADE, with no discussion. I'm like, you know what? This argument is moot when you just consider that ivermectin exists. It's cheap. Yeah. It could be easily distributed. My friend did the math to get adequate dosages through the entire Canadian population would have cost like almost $700 million, but instead we're spending billions Billions. And giving away millions in lottery, to, you know, lottery winnings to coerce people to get, right? you know, the, the, the going therapy. It's like, this is insanity. It, it is. I mean, just for us to, so we compound the ivermectin, right? There, there's ivermectin available right now by generic manufacturers. Uh, it comes a strength of three milligrams. So, but if you talk about the overall dosing that the patient needs, the dosing is between 0.2 to 0.4 uh, milligram per kilogram. So if you already weigh, let's just say 160 pounds, you're going to be needing around 15 to 18 milligrams. So number of tablets is a lot, but then the also, also the cost of the tablets end up having to increase right now because there's a bit of a shortage going on. Yes. There's, only, there's only one manufacturer that end up having to make generic ivermectin. So for us as a compounding pharmacy, we compound these things and it doesn't cost that much. So let's just say you decide to get 12 capsules for preventive purposes as a prophylaxis. It's going to cost you around $65 for three months, right? Where three, are you months, three months of not getting COVID. Right. So where are you going to get this type of uh, bank for the buck therapy out there, right? It's, and as well as is very safe. It doesn't interact with any drugs, Right. It's very, in terms of side effect potentially, it could be having a diarrhea, very mild. But the overall aspect of safety-wise is next to nothing compared to some other drugs out there, especially antiretroviral drugs. Right, right. Let's talk about drug interactions for a minute, because one of the first things I saw early on was in mice, and it was on hydroxychloroquine, and it was showing that in mice who were also on metformin, they were the ones that were having heart issues, yeah. No, nobody talks about this. It, now, how many Americans are on metformin? <laughs> a lot. You know, it's an, it's an, it's, tell the audience what that is for, used I mean, for. 
Metformin, simply put, it is a diabetic drug. But one thing that we need to talk about what's happening cellularly, and as was the mitochondrial function defect that occur from taking metformin, is that it actually depletes zinc, CoQ10, um, vitamin D, as well as B-complex vitamins, right? So those are all cofactors needed for mitochondrial function. So when you talk about uh, heart especially, what's happening there? There's a lot of mitochondria basically concentrated around to give you that function that you need in your heart, right? And that's the first thing that end up having to be affected when you're taking these type of drugs that are causing this thing called drug-induced nutritional depletion, right? right. So even metformin is one, it, it, taking beta blockers. Uh, statin drugs is another biggest culprit that end up having to cause mitochondrial damage as well. So like, yeah, I don't know if you remember, I mean, you and I had did, done that lecture for the naturopath of uh, Wisconsin, Mm-hmm. And one of the lecture you know, portion that I talked about was how do we screen patients in dealing with drug-induced nutritional depletion, but also those type of nutritional depletion can be a risk factor of getting COVID and having the worst outcome. Right, right? because you just named all the nutrients that are necessary or that have been shown to be effective as antiviral nutraceuticals. Yeah. I mean, you need zinc because zinc inhibits viral replication. You need vitamin D because it, for it, for a million reasons, yeah, <laughs> it absolutely. works in many, many mechanisms. Um, yeah. It's, and then, so there is, let, let's share with the audience why mitochondria matters, right? Because COVID has actually been shown to cause, from what I understand, damage to the inner membrane of the mitochondria or the spike proteins have that are on yeah. the coronavirus. So we've got mitochondrial dysfunction as a big player in mm-hmm. people having Severe outcomes, right? Severe outcomes, long haul issues that we see right now. So plainly, you have to understand that any type of spike protein, it is cytotoxic. Right? So we have to look at that aspect. So what's, what's ha- what does that cytotoxicity mean? Well, it actually damages your cells. So what's happening within your cells? Well, you have cellular functions in dealing with the mitochondria. Right? So I tell my patients that you think about mitochondria as like your battery pack within your cells that if you end up having to damage that battery pack because of potential toxin, potential infection coming from a virus or bacteria, whatever comes up to you, and as well as certain pharmaceuticals, that's when you actually have a higher risk factor of having mitochondrial defect and causing cellular rift, and which can also result in other potential issues in terms of having severity of COVID or any other disease, especially Lyme disease, right? So there's a lot of interplaying of this that we have to look at these matter more globally rather than just thinking about coronavirus end up having to attack and causing cytokine storm. That's not the scenario. Well, that is one picture of it. There's a lot more behind causing that cytokine uh, toxicity to occur and having to have the overall that outcome that you see, right? right? So these are things that people are scared of, but you could control that aspect of it and having to have those risk factors be reduced or basically eradicated. Right. And th- when we hear, when people message us on Instagram panicked and say, well, what about these healthy young people? My first, the fir- next thing I say back is like, show me their labs. First off, I want to see their metabolic function. I'd like to see if they're diabetic or pre-diabetic. I'd like to know where their insulin is. I'd like to know a lot of things. And then secondly, you know, what did they, are these girls that were 
in college getting prescribed Cipro for UTIs, I mean, and destroying their mitochondria. Like there's so many variables here that it is just impossible. And, and just, it's, it's ignorance to look at everybody and say, oh, we're all at risk. We're all sitting ducks. What are we going to do? Right. So you know? I mean, uh, yeah, good example. I think there was a case last summer where 19 year old runner ended up having to die from COVID. It actually happened here in New Jersey. So, you know, everybody's like, oh, you know, this guy's healthy. He's, he's running a marathon. All right, that's great. But the thing is, if you look at the overall aspect of athletes, and you've, you work with a lot of athletes yourself in your clinical practice in the past, what's, what's a clinical issue with a lot of athletes? They eat poorly. They're nutritionally depleted, especially their overall mitochondria and recovery process sucks because sucks. they don't take care of themselves. <laughs> yeah, basically, that's what it is. And so, again, when you are overworked, if you are doing a lot of endurance sports, what's happening is that you actually deplete your overall glutathione reserve in the body, right? So glutathione is what, probably one of the number one, uh, let me say, next to vitamin D, probably number one risk factor of potentially having worse COVID outcome. Yes. Okay. So when you have chronic issues like diabetes, uh, metabolic issues, your glutathione reserve actually gets depleted because of it. Why? Inflammation is the biggest issue that goes on. So again, oh, yeah. uh, you got to look at these things in a bigger picture, not just about if that person's young, you know, if that person's an athlete, whatever it is, I don't care. Show me their labs, you know, how do they eat, right? And as well as how do they take care of themselves, right? Yeah. If they're not doing the necessary things that they need to do, I don't care how old you are you may have a worsening outcome if you, don't, if you don't do the necessary things that you need to do. So again, why are we getting so scared about it? We are able to reduce the risk based on what we know. I'm not scared at, at all. I was initially concerned and I was yeah. more concerned for my family than anything. I'll say this. I have looked at the labs of many mar marathon runners and they are all a train wreck. They're like an oxidative nightmare. Yeah. Yeah, it is. <laughs> they, they are a hot mess of inflammation Yes, because they're generally overtraining and undernourishing. My daughter's 21 years old and I know what young people's health looks like. And it's a train wreck. They yeah. have been a train wreck since she was a little, little. She was born in 2000 and I've watched okay. this entire generation grow up. And the bulk of them, I would honestly tell you, the bulk of her friends that I have met are a, a train wreck. Their health is literally a train wreck. Most of them didn't even, even eat vegetables growing up. I'm not even exaggerating. They would come to my house and I'm a naturopathic doctor. And I was like, my daughter's the girl that did not sneak alcohol. She snuck soda. Like I'd find soda and pizza boxes <laughs> under her bed and I'd lose my mind. Right. Cause she's, she's like, mom, I, I'm trying, you know, she's rebelling against my natural ways. Uh, but these kids are, they have always, they've been a mess. This generation, this generation of young people is not healthy. The 40-something-year-olds, you know, they say, oh, it was a young man in his 40s. You and I both know that 40-year-olds, the, the whole demographic of 40 to 50 is actually the most likely to die early of all the age demographics. We are yep. a hot mess in this age demographic. We are we are the product and the byproduct of over-vaccination and fake fats and aspartame and all this shit that came out in the 80s that they fed us and all the processing of everything. And it's just, to me, it's, I don't mean to sound crass and say it's laughable, but it's like when people say, oh, well, he was healthy. Generally speaking, when I look at the picture of those people, they were obese. 
Or if they were not obese, they looked severely depleted to me. The other thing is if you dig into the articles, there was a, I mean, there's sadly, there was a young female physician who died last year. And of course, everyone had to blast me with it. And I, all I did was open the article on it. And there was one little sentence right before the ad, you know, right buried in the article that said that she'd had a lifelong history of chronic lung issues and chronic lung disease for what I don't know specifically what it's just like, why are we not thinking rationally? And that's okay for the public to not really comprehend this, but why are doctors not comprehending it? Why are they all, as a group, so brainwashed? I think it's because our overall medical practices, including pharmacy, is just too busy. That we are just looking at information for face value and not looking deeply into it, that we just take the information for as it is, right? Just take it, for, for instance, in terms of dealing with the... Um, I don't know, even just the, some of the cases that comes up with... COVID, and as well as the overall issue dealing with the vaccination right now, that it is completely safe. Have you seen all the studies that's coming out at this point with with COVID and case studies and various report, all these things? You could easily look it up, but we're so busy, just busy doing the regular work that we need to do just to survive, that that's the biggest issue that we see, that we're not doing the necessary things to research and really teaching ourselves and teaching the public correctly. Right. I think so I think I, they're scared too. I think they're I think they're scared of their boards and I think they're scared of what their patients might say if they speak up. I think they're just I I I don't I and I know it's very different up in Canada. My friends up in Canada were silenced immediately. The yeah. minute this hit, they were silenced. You and I have the liberty of where we live to actually treat our patients for COVID. Yeah. They're not even allowed to treat them for COVID. Really? Okay. Yeah. Oof. I mean, it's, they're not even, and vitamin D was villainized. You saw that months ago. Yeah, I mean, they basically came out and said, you can't use it. I mean, it's just crazy to me what is going on there. And we all know why, you know, we can have our speculation as to why, but if there, are, you and I talked about this last night, if there are effective therapeutics, even if they're only 75% effective or 50% effective, if there's a low harm that would come from them, can it hurt? It doesn't. And that's the biggest crap that I'm, I'm seeing right now, that whatever the big pharma says or whatever the media says, that's really more accepted than anything else, right? I still remember going to a medical conference and these sales reps be in front of you and trying to you know, introduce a new drug. What are they doing? All they're doing is just showing off you know, just great data, but that behind that data is a lot of times manipulated, right? Even the look at, just take for statin drugs, for instance, like a difference between a, a torvastatin versus a simvastatin. So those are two types of statin drugs. In terms of the overall efficacy and mortality-wise, it's the same. It's the same. But what's happening right now, you had a lot more money getting behind Lipitor, the makers of uh, Atorvastatin, putting all that money into data in terms of being somewhat manipulated. And it's just an old numbers game. And it was this marketing strategy. And that's where it comes out to. And this is the issue that we see within the medical world that we're only taking for what is worth that's being shoved at us instead of actually looking at the actual raw data. I mean, you and I were talking about this too. Whenever someone gives us a news article, I don't take it for face value. I actually want to pull that study up and look at the study model, you know, how is this designed, what's the endpoint, et cetera, to really decipher is this data really what it is 
right? Because anybody could make a headline, right? Anybody could say ivermectin does not work, but then have you seen all these studies, other studies that's coming out, right? So who's presenting the data and how we're looking at these things should be uh, looked at much more greatly rather than just taking for what it is. Right. They just believe what the media tells them. There is a great website, flccc.org, I believe. Yep. Uh, Dr. Peter Pierre. Corn. Yeah. He's, he's such a great, he's been such a great force and just tirelessly championing um, ivermectin. And it's been really heart-wrenching to see him. I thought for sure when he came out and testified in front of the government that he would be heard and it still didn't happen. You know, interestingly, what ha- do you remember what happened? I, I, I want to piece this together correctly. I feel like the day after the inauguration or the day of the inauguration, mm-hmm. the World Health Organization came out and said that they were going to lower cycle thresholds on the PCR test from yes. around 40, 45 40 to, yeah. down to 25, which is, yeah, something reasonable. That data disappeared off the site within 24 hours. I have a follower on Instagram who actually is a computer guy. So he was able to pull up the historical, you know, load the historical page or whatever it is. So I was able to see it again. And I think the same week, the the NIH came out and said, we are neither for nor against ivermectin. So then it was more easy for doctors to prescribe it. I don't understand all of those rules as much as you do. So can you talk about that? Because I know in Oregon, when I was mentioning ivermectin prior to January, whatever, people were like, oh, no, no, I'm afraid to prescribe it. And then after that, it seemed like it was more of a green light. What is that about? Right. So that that's the political aspect that I really don't like and how prescribers and practitioners are handcuffed in terms of practicing medicine the way it should be, right? The practitioner has to make the decision in terms of what's right for that patient, right? It's in terms of thinking outside the box, it could be a natural therapeutic or even a pharmaceutical interventions. Those are things that should be made the decision by the practitioner, not some medical board, not some three-letter uh, bureau in, in Washington, D.C. making these decisions, right? And this is the biggest bullshit that goes on. So, you know, if you think about hydroxychloroquine, I mentioned before that, especially in New Jersey, the medical board as well as the board of pharmacy end up having to handcuff us from even dispensing it out. And that's the biggest thing. So whenever that actually occurs, you're bound not to prescribe it. And if you do, if there's some type of um, potential harm to the patient, you could lose your license. And that's the biggest thing that the doctors are scared of, or even nurse practitioners, whoever you're practicing and prescribing these things, they're just scared the overall negative consequences, even though it didn't happen, but it's more that what if that patient gets hurt, me prescribing ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine, right? And even the hydroxychloroquine, all that uh, data that came out in terms of causing overall heart uh, damage, right? it was very minute amount of patients end up having to be affected. And that could be all screened based on, you know, the clinician's uh, standpoint, looking at the patient's um, vitals and things like that. So we, we don't have to be scared, right? So as long as you're able to reduce the risk factors, any any therapies, right? Even if you have going for a surgery, there's a risk factor of di- you dying from a surgery, right? As long as you're able to reduce that risk factor, in terms of the pr- therapies you could use or treatment you could use, 
is going to work out well for you, but that's not the case at all. And when you actually have these other government agents like NIH, you have the CDC, FDA coming out, talking negative things about the particular drug, again, the prescriber end up having to be the one may end up having to think like, hey, what if I hurt the patient and I lose my license? Because yes. It's not like the doctors are going to be just like dropping their medical license and pick up some other task or job. It's again, um, I just don't like the way that this is actually being uh, politicized and, and having to uh, affect the patients at the bottom line. Yes, because you, can, you and I can access these things for our needs, but to be able to, uh, for, the, for the general person out there, I can imagine what a, you know, to hear that these inexpensive therapies are available and then not knowing how to access them is probably terrifying and not okay. No. Um, I wanted to just say the website again, because it's FLCCC, but that's Dr. Pierre Corey, who's been doing all of the research on ivermectin. It's, you can find that website and we'll make it available in the podcast show notes, covid19criticalcare.com. That's the website. And there's some really great protocols on there that will that double down on a lot of this, plus tons of research and whole sections on ivermectin. I actually found a website. I think it is through them. Uh, they go into each drug and the, and they chart out the efficacy of the studies. Have you looked at that? I'll send it I, to you. I, I have actually. I had a quick glance of that. I think it's, yeah, it's, it's by them as well as they had some data looking at hydroxychloroquine, uh, fluvoxamine, um, yeah. looking at zinc, all the other natural therapies. Really, the, these particular therapies are very well put together based on the scientific data we actually have, right? It's not some BS data that they have to put together thinking that's going to work. No, these are really tried and true uh, formulas and protocols they've been really worked on in the front lines, especially the ICU workers. So it, 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 it works. It does work. My, I've been fortunate enough to... Well, my friends have, I should say, my friends have been fortunate enough to get the medications they needed as they need. I've known lots of people who've had COVID. You've right. treated far more than I've experienced. But they, the first thing when they called me and said, I'm sick, I was like, go get ivermectin. And they were all given a Z-pack, ivermectin, and a steroid, and they are all fine. And yeah. some of them were really sitting in a pickle when they called me. You know, they were at that 10-day mark, which is important. Again, going back to that interleukin-6 for the audience that that 10 day mark about ish seven to 10 days is really when that cytokine storm will make its appearance. If it's going to right? does that seem yeah. to be the, yeah, it's, that's the critical. It, it, watch it is. Period. It's, about, it's about seven to uh, 10 day period. I mean, um, I did a lecture on this particular matter with practitioners about this. There's about, if you think about the overall issue dealing with COVID, there's about four different phases of COVID happening, right? Um, there is the overall issue in terms of the virus entering into a cell and then having to causing cytokine activity and having organ failures and et cetera. So there's, there's a different phase of the infections. You know, if, as long as you're able to prevent these phases from occurring early on, that's the best course of treatment. And that's where ivermectin fits into play to one, uh, use as a prophylaxis and two, as an early intervention to treat these patients. So this way, the overall cytokine burden that goes on is much less. Yes. And so there's much less damage on the tail end for the patient. Yeah. yeah, it's crazy. Well, we should have you back on to do the whole four phases. We could talk about that. We could do a whole podcast on it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, <laughs> no, I mean, there's, there's so much things that we could even talk about on, on these things. Uh, it's not even just the 
that, you could talk about, you know, what are the natural therapies that could potentially use for yourself? Because I am a strong believer that, you know, the doctor of the future is the patient, right? Mm-hmm. You have to empower these patients to make the right decisions, not just about relying on us, but just really taking care of themselves as well. So what can we do to empower them to prevent potential outbreak and the severity of COVID, right? Lifestyle is one thing, but then especially the natural therapeutics, like Andrew Graffis actually has a humongous data out there to utilize for this purpose. I mean, even a governor of Thailand giving mm-hmm. out Andrew Graffis for COVID purposes is mind-blowing. And why can't we talk about those kind of things? Oh, we can't because you had a, you know, a government as well as a big farmer getting involved and you can't do this really. Yes. I know. It's, it is the world we live in. I do find it interesting that people are just waking up to this now. I have known this as a naturopathic physician. I have been well aware of this for decades. And to see people finally coming around to what's really going on has been, it's been frustrating to have to hold their hand through it, but it is refreshing that people are finally waking up. So... Well, Dr. John, I'm so happy that you came on today. We are going to have you do a few more episodes here because we've got a lot to talk about. I want to make sure that the audience can find you wherever your wonderful places are. So where do you want to send people? So you can find me in three different places. One, I do practice in New Jersey as an integrative and as was a compounding pharmacist in North Jersey. So you can find me at uh, a town called Mendham, New Jersey, Um, and we do... Uh, work with practitioners in New Jersey and New York. So you can find me there. Uh, the website is robinsondrugshop.com. And in terms of finding me on social media, it's uh, Dr. D is another way to do so. And I also provide a virtual consultation for patients who's looking for um, certain matters you're dealing with, uh, chronic diseases uh, or whatever you want to discuss about in terms of your health, I am available for patients. Awesome. I saw that on your site. I was excited. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) You're you're such a great resource for people. So I hope people will check that out. You guys follow him on Instagram. He's wonderful. His his content on there is always mind blowing. And uh, we'll make sure to get this out on all those platforms as well. Is there anything you want to leave the audience with? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, One of the things that I really want to encourage people is to take care of themselves better rather than living in fear, right? Fear, it's end up having to be making us, uh, cloudy in terms of our overall judgment and making the right decisions. Don't live in fear, right? Just as Dr. Tina mentions about, and just empower yourself in living healthy life. Amen. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming on. We will have you back soon. Doc, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Dr. Tina Show. Please be sure to follow me on Instagram at Dr. Tina, that's D-R-T-Y-N-A and Dr. Tina 2.0, as well as visit my website at drtina.com. This is a Resonant Media production produced by Drake Peterson and mixed by Chris McCone. The theme song is by John the Guilt. As always, you can email the show at podcast at drtina.com. And if you like this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. See you next week. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. It does not constitute the practices of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to this podcast is at the user's own risk. The content on this podcast is intended not to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. 
Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice from any medical condition they have, and they should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions. 